Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Great Birth Rebellion and this is the first episode for the year 2023. So welcome back. I hope your holiday season was restful and blissful. Today, this is a post-production recording from me, Melanie Jackson. I'm not here in this episode. In this episode, you will hear B interviewing Rhea Dempsey and she'll in- introduce her in the episode here. And they are talking all about pain, the oxytocin story, bravery in birth, the role of doulas and partners, and so much more. This conversation went to the very reaches of birth and what we know about birth. So please enjoy, soak it up, and I will see you in the next episode. Please enjoy B and Ria for this episode 22 of The Great Birth Rebellion. So today I have the phenomenal Rhea Dempsey in this podcast space. Uh, We are going to chat all things pain and birth. And I mean, it's a huge honor to have you here, Rhea, because you, I mean, right from the start of my career, you were one of those wise women that, you know, myself and my peers, my student peers all looked up to and were like, wow, what she is talking about is is what we want women to know about. And then as a pregnant person, I actually read your book myself just to get my head in the, you know, in the right headspace during my first pregnancy. And it was interesting, you know, because I'd recommended it to everyone um, (laughs) without ever reading it in full because I just trusted it. I trusted your work. Yeah. As a midwife, I'd recommended it. You know, I had that, just that trust that I knew what you had written and I'd done some workshops with you at conferences. And so I knew the gist of what you were going to write about. And then when I read it as a, as a pregnant woman, I was like, Oh yes, she's so the money. And then I booked in to do a workshop with you, and I gave birth on the Friday at thirty six four. And my workshop with you was on the Saturday and Sunday. And I remember messaging and saying, "I can't come to the workshop because I've got a brand new baby." But um, my husband also read the book, and I remember halfway during labor, he was like, "Where on Ria's map are you? Take your book out, figure it out yourself." Because yeah. we didn't have the midwives or anyone there. But he was like, and he like drew it on the wall like with his hair like where on the map are you (laughs) brilliant so give everyone listening a bit of background if you don't um know who Rhea is I remember from your book your introduction you saying that so you're from the UK originally and you're an ex-PE teacher is that yes but I'm not I'm I'm Australian through and through country Victoria girl but I was in England when I had my first baby. And you were working as a PE teacher over there prior to that? Yes, and a PE teacher, swimming teacher, all, all things physical, the body working well, peak performance, strength, power, physiological pain, effort, yeah. all of those things. So you just, yeah. I mean, anybody who knows that, you can just know the threads of that just are the foundation of my working birth. Yeah. And, you know, I think when I read that first paragraph, that that's what, what I resonated why I resonated with you so much because I had been running marathons prior to becoming pregnant and I had read that you were were you a kayak 
did you do kayak marathons? I just remember thinking, like, how do you do that? Like, I can run easy, but you do that on water. That whole, so for those, many people won't know this, but my first degree was actually in sports psychology. Ah, Um, So I came straight out of school and started studying sports psychology. And I now, I often catch myself and I'm like, you've done a full 360 because birth is the ultimate sports psychology in my mind. Um, And I, yeah, I mean, you're nodding along too. And I think that's why there's always, like, I've always had this you know, I've been able to resonate with you so well. So you had your baby in the UK and you had the... Can I just riff on what you just said there there for a minute? Because for me, uh, and I mean, with you coming from that background before you then went into midwifery, I'm imagining some of the same things. And the foundation is about the body working well, the body working hard, and that the mind is part of that story as well. So that's the psychology part of it. But that there's an understanding when we frame that in terms of birth, in terms of physical performance, whether that's, you know, whatever sport that might be, that there's an expectation, yeah, that it's going to be tough, it's going to have its physical demands, but that's about your body healthy and well doing its thing, doing what it's possible. And so that's been, for me, I feel that just that great blessing to come into birth after having those experiences, not only in my own body but in the work that I did, not coming through the nursing, which would have been, if I'd come into mid, you know, doing birth stuff at the age that I did and at the time that I did, I would have had to do nursing and then midwifery. And that, that skews that whole idea about pain being something that's about things going wrong. And so, yeah, so your background coming in that way, it's a really you know, a little bit different, but mirrors really that, that, that foundation that I came in with as well. So you had your first baby and you experienced the cascade of intervention. Mm-hmm. Then what happened? How did you get into birth work? Yeah, yeah. So she, uh, that first daughter was born in, in England. Uh, then we came, my husband, who is at that time English, and um, we came back to Australia. And I, I mean, I was lucky. I think I was very, very lucky because in England, the home birth thing, even though I didn't have a home birth because I could have, as having a first baby, I could have if I was prepared to, if we were prepared to shift from where we lived and go to a different county because it sort of depended where you lived. And I, being a phys ed teacher and also being very physical, I just trusted my body. I just thought, like, I've got a strong, healthy body. I've done all these sorts of things. This is before I had my first baby. I've done all these sorts of things. My body serves me well. So although I like the idea of a home birth because I I had friends around me in, in England who were having home births, when it was difficult for me to organise that because of the system, I was thinking, well, yeah, it would be lovely, but, you know, I'll be fine because, you know, I'm just going to blitz this. My body knows what it's doing. Uh, I just go into this place. This is what they do. They just watch over. But, you know, it'll be fine. Well, it wasn't so fine. It was like that, just that naivety that I know many, 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 many women carry exactly that same story. They trust their body. They feel their body has served them well in all sorts of ways. They feel like they have the capacity. They don't understand fully what's going to happen in that system. And the system as it is now is even stronger in terms of an influence than it was even back then when I had my first daughter. So when I came out of her birth, I came out of that birth, sort of when I surfaced, I came in, I was like, what the fuck happened there? What? How did that unfold? So I was left with that. I was lucky, just to, to put this in the contemporary, because this is 45 years ago we're talking about when I had that first baby. And I think one of the big shifts, because I do far too much birth debriefing, I hear these stories over and over again, 
But one of the big things I think that's changed, I had, whether out of my own lived experience or it hadn't yet morphed in this way, but coming out of that birth with my first daughter, feeling what the fuck happened, I didn't take that on board that there was anything wrong with my body. I came out of that thinking, what what the fuck happened there in terms of why this? Why that? Why did they do these things? So I, you didn't blame yourself. You blamed the system. Exactly. Which and so Rhea does birthday reading just like I do, and so many women will blame themselves. Well, you know, you sit with women, and there's so much apology, and there's so much self blaming, and so much self criticism. That's just so open in conversation you know and so often women walk away from their births and go I should have done this why didn't I do that you know and they're aware of what their gut instinct was but they weren't able to tap into it and I call it the good girl syndrome syndrome because we're so conditioned to be a good girl that we behave ourselves so well in the system and then uh, later on reflection we're like oh that didn't serve me and now it's my fault whereas you yeah whether it was luck or whether it's culture it was cultural at the time or you know that gen you know more reflective of your generation you were able to see it for what it was which was the system and I think also it's it's not only just to stay with that for a moment it's not only that women are blaming themselves for not knowing more in terms of making choices or what have you but they also don't trust their bodies because it's mm. it, the way it's presented in the birth culture at present is that their bodies don't work yeah so that, it's a double whammy. And- so anyway, I was felt lucky to have come through that. Anyway, we came back to Australia and, and I had some friends who had had home births here. I was very marginal here I'm in Melbourne, very, very marginal. But so, and I just was feeling, you know, well, I'm not doing that again. I'm not going, you know, I came out still with a good sense of my body and my capacity and then just had that home birth with that next baby and got involved then in a just this small community that was around home births at that point here in Melbourne. And without going into all the politics of it, but it was a very different scene to now. It was really through GPs who were the key medical umbrellas of around home birth. And once being in that home birth scene, even before when I was pregnant, so I, it's like if you had any experience of birth, whether it was a, then it's like you were deemed to be experienced because there was, we're all running by the, the flying by the seat of our pants. So before I had that second baby, my own first home birth, I'd already been to three or four home births as a support person. But of course, often the women were having their second babies, similar story to mine. And you know what those so many of those second babies do? They don't care about waiting for anybody. And so they're just so you know, I had that beautiful capturing experience of, of being the one who the baby's coming and somebody's receiving the baby and that happened to me me so I was hooked. While you were pregnant with your second oh, like a dream experience. Dream experience. So wow. So then that's become that's become how it is. Yeah. So and in yeah. those days early days back then that's in you know as I say 45 or so years ago we you know the word doula hadn't come into the picture at that point so I think there were three or four of us here in Melbourne that were doing that with the GP they weren't really medically trained midwives in the home birth scene at that point so it was sort of I guess maybe if we called ourselves solved anything we called ourselves lay midwife I mean the American you know Ina May she she the book came out but that described what was happening in Australia as well so they were describing really so many of the things of that pathway for 
for those of us women like myself or going down that homebirth scene. So that was that was happening in good old Melbourne. And it was happening. That was, yeah, 70s and 80s. So doctors were kind of, it was really GPs that were supporting home birth and then other wise women, really, who didn't yet have a title that was supporting it as well, but is now what has become doulas. And so now you run doula training. Yep. And you offer birth debriefs in person in Melbourne and you've written two incredible books. So the first one is Birth with Confidence and what's its full title? I've forgotten now. Birth with Confidence, Savvy Choices for Normal Birth. And the second one is it's called Beyond, Beyond, the, the, Beyond the Birth Plan. Beyond the Birth Plan, Getting Real About Pain and Power. Can I talk a little bit about just a little bit about the process of writing? Please. Not, not not deeply about the process of writing, but I thought when eventually so privileged, privileged experiences, so many privileged. I've done I really only do births that I can't say no to, which is the grandchildren and the grandnieces and nephews and what have you. How brilliant. I've been at the birth of every baby that's come in the next generation of my family. I mean, there's, there's it fills me with tears because I'm like, there is a part of us as women where that was the normal for so many thousands of years and we've lost that and I think that's why the tears are there right because it's like oh we've lost that but that was our norm that was our norm exactly so what a privilege anyway so I'm not doing births generally but over the span of you know it's been about 1500 births that I've been involved in and that's you know well you know how that goes in terms of if you if you're involved as a dual like it's you know you spend putting the hours in so that's a that's a lot a lot of training to understand and so I felt that I had some very privileged experiences. One of the women that I'd been with for three of her babies, she said to me after after the third baby, she said, Ria, I think I think you've got three books to write and then a PhD. So somehow or other that that stewed and I felt that I did have, you know, a lot of these experiences. And at one well, another thing that happened, you know, there was the move to try and there was a group of us we called the witches who tried to get set up a direct entry midwifery course. If we could have done, this was really in the late 80s, and if we were talking to some of the unis and we got quite close, but then in Victoria the government changed and went out the window. So a number of the other women who'd been doing the work, maybe if we called ourselves lay midwives, dropped out of birth at that point. I felt, well, what else can I do? I'm not going to drop out of it, but I'm not going to go and do nursing and then midwifery as it was then. So I went back to uni and did counselling and psychology. And so. So that was laying all those plans. So I felt like I had some insight. I'd been given these gifts, all of us, as in the early home birth stuff, as Ian May talks about, you know, when things weren't going straightforwardly, if it's a healthy body and if it wasn't going straightforwardly, we we would just be saying to one another, ah, oh, it's the feelings. It's the feelings. You know, what's going on? What is going on? How can we tap into that? How can we tap into it? Mm. I thought that in terms of getting more of a handle on the psychological aspects, that would be good. So, yeah, so the first book really framing that whole thing about normal physiological childbirth, talking particularly around that escalating intensity, and I've used that term. I mean, as a sports psychologist, as me as a physical education teacher or what have you, if you were working with any kids or anybody trying to achieve something, you know, with their physical body, then we know that they reach points of, you know, hitting pain barriers is what we'd probably call it. They know there's nothing wrong, like there's nothing going wrong with the body. This isn't a signal about anything going wrong. It's just really the effort now is, or it's in the yoga class or the gym, you know, hitting that pain barrier. So I, in the context of 
the birth stuff started to talk about a crisis of confidence. So that was that's then my, you know my language about equivalency of how it might be on a marathon or how it might be in a kayaking marathon. You know, I tell that story because when we're in that crisis of confidence in birth, or if you're in that hitting that what we might call crisis of confidence or hitting a pain barrier in anything that you're trying to achieve, of course, what you want to do is just stop. You you don't want to keep going. You don't feel like you can go and go. It's too hard. Unless you've got at that point, I don't know, your coach's voice in your head or somebody running beside you or somebody on the sideline or somebody or or the, you know, the sports psychologist who's given you a whole framework in your mind to, to hold that together when you reach those points. Or in birth, the doula or the midwife, or who can be that can just support you at that time. Yeah, it feels like it's impossible, but what we can do this and do that, or just be very present to you at that moment. It's not like you know you can be prepared for something. It doesn't mean to say that you're not going to have these challenges, these mental sort of emotional challenges in the midst of it unfolding. And even when I was doing marathon kayaking, you know, there would come that point where I think, you know, why the fuck am I doing this? You know, and so the seduction of I could just sort of accidentally on purpose happen to fall out of the kayak and the safety boat would come and pick me up and offer me a cup of tea out of the thermos and wrap wrap me in a warm blanket and I could just go go back to the finish line. I mean, that's so seductive at those moments when it's like, what the hell? So it's seductive in the birth scene, seductive in it. So at that point, all the preparation that you do, whether it's for the marathon or for the birth, all the preparation can be dissolved. The person who's doing it has got to be willing and committed and give the message to the people who are with them yeah, I do want to get through this. I know it can get hairy, and if it gets hairy at those times, if everything is straightforward, I want you to step in and, you know, really take me through that crisis or support me through that crisis and remind me of how my breathing might be at that point or the change, the position or what have you. So that um, whole crisis of confidence has been is the core of that first book, and it seems to have been captured and be useful so I'm yeah, sure. we all use that. That term is just so well known now. But I really want to highlight what you're talking about and how, especially in the birth space, being supported through your crisis of confidence What as a midwife, right? So as a midwife providing continuity of carer, meaning I'm your primary midwife the whole way through your pregnancy, I'm on call for you in your labour and birth. So it is more likely than not that I will be looking after in labour. And we have these conversations in depth of what do you want me to do when you get to this crisis of confidence? Because I always say there's a fine line between being the incredible midwife that helped you through and the bitch that didn't give you the epidural. And I find it very easy in a continuity of care model to be the amazing midwife that helped you through because there is that trust that there is also that knowledge and permission that yes I want you to help me through this whereas I've worked fragmented care where a woman just rocks up and you have to look after her or you're looking after her in labor and it is incredibly hard to be like oh am I going to be that bitch that she hates or am I going to be that person that she's helping her here because we haven't had those prior conversations you know I say that when women ask for pharmaceutical drugs typically what they're asking for is not to take the pain away what they're asking for is support Yes. Now, some people listening to this may not agree with me and they're like, no, I was definitely asking for the pain to be taken away. 
But there is there is a lot to that, as in the information that you have around the pain, the culture that that pain um, has been given to you in. You know, is it that it's a bad pain that has to be taken away, or is it that it's a good pain to work with? Because the pain is not different. And I will say here that some labors have pathophysiological pain, right? And that is when there is an intervention that is done to you, like breaking your waters or vaginal examinations can have pathophysiological pain, especially if there's been trauma in that pelvic space. Uh, Lots of people experience back or hip or thigh pain, and that is a different pain to what we're talking about. What we're talking about today is that physiological pain that is a normal response to the womb, the uterus contracting and to get your baby out. And, you know, a a labor with pathophysiological pain is different. Um, It still requires that same support and women and birthing people can still move through that with support without pharmaceutical methods of pain management. Yes. Can I just draw out two or three points? So one is absolutely I mean, if women are working in their birth situation with continuity of care midwives, so exactly as you say, all of this stuff is talked about and planned about and so on before before the day. If women are going into fragmented care or standard care, because the language I use, where the midwife is unknown to them and the midwife, the, the woman is unknown to the midwife. So that thing of then of with that continuity, whether it's doulas or midwives or what have you, then that. The pain discussions are happening. The planning is, you know, okay, you're going to reach these crises of confidence. They're predictable. When that happens, we can do this and this and this, and and the mother is is getting clear about that, and the team is also clear about it. And of course, if there's an exception where something actually medically is is going awry, well, that's a different story. But in terms of straightforward births, then that intensity and the building intensity is part of the deal. So the that's what I call giving a green light. Yeah, so the mother, the willing, what I call a willing woman. So this is a so B. We know women don't have to engage with their with birthing if they don't want to. They can have the Caesar, they can have the elective Caesar. Yeah, it's all on on the smorgasbord for them. But the women who come to me, and I'm I assume many of them who come to your work, are women who want to still have a go, who want to still engage with their body, engage with the process, and so I call them willing women. So willing women need to give a green light about being supported through crises of confidence where they feel like they can't do it any longer and what have you. That has to be done beforehand. If they're in standard care or fragmented care and the midwife doesn't know them and they don't know the midwife, they have got to put it on their birth plan, clear, clear, clear. They need to be able to try and draw that midwife out because there are many midwives in that system who are hungry to work with women who want to have a go. They've got mm-hmm. all those skills that they would love to be working with a woman through a crisis of confidence to encourage her through and so on, so on, so on. But because the midwife doesn't know who the mother is, you know, the birth plan is the only place where that can be mediated. Permission, where the so, permission can be given. So that green light. So anybody, any woman in those situations, when we want to have a go at normal physiological childbirth, want to work with the pain, they need to give that midwife the green light to, to do some work. Yeah, so those midwives who would passionately love to be supporting women, their best skills are unable to be used in that situation because I, what I've seen over the years of watching is that, and I don't want to get hijacked in our conversation about the fucking epidural, but just to make mention. Because sadly, or long lived of it, you know, we were around seeing it start to come, the epidural. And we were thinking naively, this is going to be brilliant, just in some of those births where the baby's in, the position is not good and to have the epidural. We didn't have the foresight to understand that the epidural is going to overtake everything. 
It was going. It was going to invade women's mind space. It's taken over the social, cultural story about pain in labour, and so the epidural. So instead of way back when, earlier time working at birth, me, you know, women when they reach these, come to those the edges of crisis of confidence or whatever, they'd be saying things like, oh, "I can't do it anymore. It's too strong. It's too hard. It's too my back." Blah, 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 blah. Now. The language is of a crisis of confidence is get me the fucking epidural. And yeah. so for the midwife <laughs> or whoever to be able to, you've got to have that green light beforehand. Otherwise, pretty well, that's what's got to have to happen. Even that's though, let me just feel, follow this thing. Even if the midwife had other skills and could see that you know, she's, it would be good to just move her through this part and so on and so on. So the epidural has hijacked the mindset and the culture, but also, we have to put into that picture, you know, Nikki Leap. I mean, Nikki Leap, she's a British midwife. But she's one of my teachers. I know, but you know how in Australia, anybody, it doesn't matter where they've been born, if they do something brilliant here, we're going to claim them as an Aussie. So she's a good Aussie. So she did that brilliant work on midwives' attitudes towards pain in labour. And she framed, it's much more complex than this, but she framed it in terms of that there were midwives who had an attitude towards pain in labour, which was about pain relief. Now. Nikki doesn't say this, but I lay on top of that, layer on top of that, that that's more of a nursing framework, yeah? Pain relief in the context of things going wrong in the body or, or anyway, if you're in a hospital or whatever, then that pain relief is part of that story. So she talks about some midwives have a pain relief mindset and then there are other midwives who have a working with pain mindset. So stepping back from her research, just using that language, you know, we could see that more in terms of, well, that is more of a medical nursing main mindset and the working with pain mindset is more like your sports psychologist, more like your phys ed teacher, more like your coach, more your, more in that functional physiological pain of achieving whatever it is that you're and working with that and being supported to work with it, even though there are times when those crises of confidence come and you need all that support. So, I mean, for women who are savvy about this, if they can get into some sort of continuity of care, whether it's, you know, the, the team in the hospital or it's the independent midwives or it's the home birth or what have you, those midwives are all the working with pain midwives. They've got all those skills. If they can't tap into that, well, then the doulas, yeah, then the, the um, to get those working with pain skills that understands the process and can just be encouraging you through. And the other thing, those crises of confidence, I mean, they can be pretty, pretty hairy, but they don't last forever. They're on the cusp of, you know, they come at points where the labour is just going so beautifully and ramping up that intensity and they're just usually, particularly the big one that could come around seven centimetres, I weep when I have these birth debriefings when women, you know, the epidural comes in at seven centimetres when they're just on the cusp of that brilliant change in brainwaves, the whole hormonal system is they're, they're just going to drop down so deeply with all those endorphins coming through, going into that primal space, the evolutionary regression, as I call it. They're on the cusp of magic to drop in and that birth is just going to... You know how it, I mean, I've got all the tingles all over me because I can feel all that oxytocin flowing me even as I speak about it. And that is when the, you know, it's, it's a tough gig. It needs to be at that point, a few contractions, which are tough and need good support with people who know it and just can move you through that until women drop deeply in, but so often hijacked because, because of all the culture and about pain and so on and so on. So that's important for women to understand. So maybe though to just layer a little bit more into that crisis. So my first book is really talking about that crisis of confidence 
mainly in terms of that being like a physiological challenge. My second book is more about the psychological, emotional, yeah, the deeper stories that women might carry that can be because pain it's not only in the tissues, you know, the physical pain of the stretch and all of that stuff, but, of course, it can be overlaid with pain of trauma or tension or distress or what have you. That adds another another layer, and that also can be part of what needs to be supported for, for women to move through these, what I'm calling, crisis of confidence, or to take on the challenge. Also, I, I joke, you know, that even at home, but, you know, that women are trying to, like you, to crawl, crawl out the window. Women are trying mm. to find the car keys to get the epidural. It is so embedded now in the mindset. Mm. So it's hijacked the whole show. And I sort of feel like some some responsibility that we missed back then to not fight against it. We welcomed it in and with without really seeing the consequence. And, I mean, there, there's another, she is an Aussie, a brilliant you know, I mean, Australia, we've got some of the top midwifery researchers in the world. And they yeah, are we do. Brilliant, brilliant work. They're doing brilliant work, particularly around normal physiological childbirth and midwifery, the link with midwifery there. And I feel very privileged, actually. I mean, in these more latter years of being a childbirth educator, this midwifery research is just like gold to the educator mm -hmm. to, to be able to then use that research and disseminate it to, to, to couples. So Elizabeth Newman, so she did a PhD on the epidurals, and I have really referenced the hell out of her book in that second book of mine where I really have a, have a look at the epidurals, and she, she maps it very clearly as an epidural culture, not only for women in their mindset, partners as well, everybody, but also mm. midwives, also mm. midwives. I mean, one of the things for everybody to understand, I think, that really when a woman is on an epidural, it's a much more separate to what her experience of it is, but it's a, it's easier for everybody. Nobody has to do any emotion work once she is on the epidural. The partner can sleep. The, you know, all that emotion work of that intensity of helping to help her to stay with those contractions and move into the, that across that crisis of confidence moment, no more. Midwife doesn't have to do any emotion work. It, it takes out all of that. As well as that, of course, we know that once the epidural is in, it's pretty predictable. It's going to be, the labour is going to be shortened. It's more predictable. We know how long the labour is going to last because the baby either won't like it and will go to a seizure quite quickly or it'll go to the forceps or vacuum. And so it's much more predictable in terms of a hospital system trying to, you know, work out how many. I always talk about birth in the system is often a bed management issue. Yeah. So the epidural serves so many needs apart from the need of normal physiological childbirth. Let me just say the stats. So in the stats, as you would know, there is no such category as normal physiological childbirth. Yeah, it doesn't exist. So I have take on board and feel like, and I've before COVID when I used to do quite a lot of talks and things in hospitals, even with obstetricians, I would always ask, you know, what's how, how, what, how many normal physiological childbirth do you think are happening in this hospital? And they want to usually barter with me. Well, do you, you know, do you mean if we, you know, the epidural birth or this birth? I say, no, 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 no. I mean a birth of starting hormones, mum doing that whole dance with her body and with good support and baby born and so on. You know, and the most I ever get from people just because not in the stats, is 1% to 5%. And I think that's the case because it's it's the home births, the birth centres, the born-before-arrival babies, some of whom now are the figures of there, are some, some, some of them are the free births. And if you add those up, so it's, I think, 2.3% in birth centres, it's about 
0.4 of a percent for home births. We need more home births. So let me just say these stats, the key, some yeah. of the key stats. So just in terms of that um, thing of spontaneous onset, yeah? Spontaneous mm-hmm. So going onset. into labour on your own. So your own, your baby and your hormones choosing when you labour. Spontaneous onset. So this is where the baby calls the shots about its timing because the baby's sending up the message, the mother. So this is a hormonal story, yeah? Between and a dance between the mother and the baby. Well, spontaneous onset is now only 42%. Only 42% of babies get to call the shots about when they're going to be born and when they're ready. I mean, it makes me so angry, but it also makes me so, so, so grief filled. So 42%. But of that 42% who at least start spontaneously, so that means there's, I think about this as an in, as a oxytocin story. So 42% of mums and babies get a whiff of oxytocin driving that show. And we know oxytocin, you know, like the hormone of love and bonding. And But of that 42%, 30% of that 42% are going to go on to be augmented once they get into the hospital with the synthetic form of oxytocin, which is not dealing with the same sort of magic as normally occurring, naturally, physiologically occurring oxytocin. So just thinking about that. Induction rate. You've got a four in 10 chance of going to labor on your own. If you are in that four in 10, you've only got a two third percent chance of not getting augmented. Exactly. And then we've got the induction rate is 35%. Mm -hmm. So that's using synthetic oxytocin. Synthetic Mm -hmm. oxytocin does not, it can drive contractions, doesn't do all the other magic of bonding and falling in love and everybody, oxytocin being excreted in the room and everybody in the room falling in love. I mean, why do you think us old hippies kept going to births? It was just like a love fest. Oh, glorious, glorious, glorious. So the induction rate and the elective Caesar rate, so no oxytocin, no queen oxytocin. I call, I make the differentiation between queen oxytocin, naturally occurring from the mother's and baby's bodies, and secreted and everybody all of us falling in love, and, you know, synthetic oxytocin. So elective caesar has no queen oxytocin. Elective caesar, 23%. Biggest reason for elective caesarean in Australia is having a previous caesarean. That means that so most people are electing for their second pregnancy to have a caesarean, and then that's all about VBACs and, you know, and, and preventing the first caesarean. Preventing the first caesarean, of course. I mean, there's so many areas for anybody to get passionate about and do some work in this space. We're doing our best, aren't we? We are. I mean, that's why we're here today. As a as a world, we're moving more and more and more away from oxytocin events, right? Because oxytocin comes through connection, and so it's becoming our norm to have days without laughter. It's becoming our norm to have days without love and months without love and years without feeling true love and presence and connection. Because, I mean, you talk about epidurals, uh, you know, I talk about those those mobile phones. Like, you know, that's we are so disconnected as a culture now to our own bodies, to our partners and our families. Um, there is so much disconnection and, and oxytocin, Yes. Right. Like you were talking about, you know, you'd be at a birth and you and your colleagues would be like, well, it's the feelings. Like, what has she got to process to go through this transformation? Because that's what birth is. Birth is the transformation of you from a woman um, into a a mother. And so there has to be this shift and this movement in the emotions and the feelings. And so you and I know that I, and you know, even when you're doing a birthday brief, you're like, okay, what was there for you? That's what, you know, you're trying to figure out and help this person process and move through. Like, why did you get that birth? Why did you need it? Well, I think I'm more and more thinking about it as an oxytocin story. 
and mm. and so oxytocin is a hormone of love as you've talked about but it's also and social connection and of course we have big worries in the in our communities about social connection and really i i was once giving you know one of my talks somewhere and one of the dads came up to me afterwards and he was just about in tears and he said, Rahira, this has blown my mind. He said he was just, he's an attachment researcher. And he said, there's not that many of them and they are all connected around the world. And he said that we as attachment researchers, you know, we saw that in the 70s and 80s, there was a big shift in, you know, the rates of secure attachment or the different attachment, you know, less than secure attachment styles. And we as attachment researchers were thinking it's about childcare. The formal childcare. That's what we've thought it was about. He said, none of us, this is what he said to me, he said, none of us have known anything about what is going on in birth and looking at this oxytocin story in terms of birth. And oxytocin, of course, is the formation of attachment. I mean, how, how, we're going to go all day here. So oxytocin, 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 queen oxytocin, she's hardly getting a look in. And what does that mean to births? What does that mean to mums and babies? What does that mean to families? What does that mean to the social? We are seeing the results of it, I think. This is my passion now. Anyway, let me keep going. So the vaginal birth rate is 63%. So people hearing that without really understanding might think, oh, well, that's not so bad. But no, that is bad. That just means that the baby's gotten out of the mother's fanny, Yeah. Doesn't mean to say that this has been the whole physiology the whole time or what have you. Some of them will, of course, be forceps and vacuum. And then, of course, the Caesar rate is our Caesar rate. We've got the elective Caesar rate, but the Caesar rate overall is 37%. So of the of the 63% that have vaginal births, what part of those are vaginal without assistance? The non-instrumental vaginal birth is only 50%. So of the 60, 50% of the 63%, non-instrumental, but again, that doesn't mean it's been a normal physiological childbirth because it could be an induction, it could be, you know, we know it's all complex. This is what I mean, it all gets broken down. You can't get a figure for really a whole... Physiological birth. Then, of course, we have the pain relief. So of women who labour, of women who labour, 79% of them are going to use medical pain relief. Four in five women will use medical pain relief. So the, the social... Cultural norm is medical pain relief for labour and in particular that epidural. So I think that many women who are passionate, who want to have a go, and particularly I'm speaking, I guess, to the women like myself when I had my first baby feeling, oh, no, I'm healthy, I'm well and I'm strong and I know my body and I can work with my body and so on. Uh, it's okay if I go into that system. But even more so now women with that attitude of their own capacity going up against that big system. This is what the stats are. No, it's not okay. They have got to really be making those choices outside the box to to protect their birthing capacity. That's what I would say. Think They still think, I'll be fine. I think that's one of the most damaging things and people realise that after the event. You know, they have that contrast of go, oh, I thought I was going to be okay and I wasn't. And so this is, it's not saying that it's all doom and gloom. It's just saying be educated, get your support system in place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe what a, yeah, so the jump to the second book. Just again, back into my story about writing the books. So I, at that point, as a childbirth educator, was running weekly pregnancy classes for, for women, weekly postnatal classes. Once a month, the pregnancy and postnatal classes would get together so that the pregnant women would see the women who had been sitting in circle with them for sometimes months on the other side to hear the birth story in the context of the mother's choices and uh, who the mother was and what she, you know what she shared during the pregnancy circle it was a beautiful model and they would also be seeing the babies <laughs> 
so the pregnant woman sitting and the mum's there telling their birth stories and the baby's, you know, just whipping the baby on the breast or the baby's unsettled, they're changing the nappy as they're telling the story. It's like the, the new mums who are pregnant women who have, haven't had not around babies, this was just an education in itself. It wouldn't matter what the words were. It, just, it was such, I did that for years and years and, you know, probably for 30 years. And someone came, you know, for almost nine months of their pregnancy and then the rule was that you could come back with your babies until the babies were sort of moving around and just being so so delightfully disorganising in, in a circle sense. So they that was happening and then I was doing the couples workshops and I was doing couples parenting I and mean, just a whole so beautiful, beautiful work. I don't do all of that now. It was out of the years of doing that work that so much of what has come into these books has come through and the stories because I've been involved in so many of those births as well as that more in-depth <coughs> experience with the couples. Childbirth education now might be a weekend, might be one day. This was like an immersion experience for me and for the couples. So so I could see, I could be seeing this stuff about attachment and I was, you know, I'd done my uni stuff and seeing this stuff about the theory and that thing about feeling safe I mean, the core of feeling safe as human beings is actually laid down very, very early in terms of attachment, attachment style. It's that thing of, you know, this safe haven, which is so vital to our hormonal story that, that's running in our body. There's now research about this in terms of birth, about midwives and doulas being present at birth, offering an opportunity, a healing opportunity of less than favourable attachment processes to be experienced by the new mother, which then can flow on to change in the generational system. I'm so to break that down, this is people who haven't had good attachment with their parents. Yeah. So you've had that experience as a young child and then in birth you get this doula or this midwife and there's this incredible connection and they support you through the birth process and that heals your attachment, yeah, can be a foundation. It's, it's like a modelling of how then, and we know, of course, that's an, a, a totally oxytocin immersion experience, and so the baby is mm. just going to be swept up into that. Mm. So it sets a foundation for for the beginnings of a secure attachment attachment with that baby. Yeah, it takes more than that just in those moments. But this is a this is a setup in the hormones. It's a setup in just feeling safe. And I'm I'm sitting here kind of mourning because that first birth, I I refused to call anyone because I thought I would fail if I did. And I never had anyone there with me in my first birth. And then my second birth, my best friend walked in and she held my hand and I had this rush of oxytocin. And I remember thinking in that moment, in my labour, this is what I give women. Yes. This is the feeling that I give them. Yeah. And I birthed my baby very quickly after that, moments after that. But I, it was this distinct, it was a moment in life that I would never, ever forget because I was like, that's this is what she's given me and now I'm giving her that. And, that, I mean, we see that. I, I feel that. As a midwife, I know what I'm giving women when I stand there in my core, you know, like I just had to, yeah, I just had to add that in about the whole, like when my friend held my hand because it was like, yeah, that's that's what exactly what you're talking about, that healing. It's an attachment healing because mm. I would sort of presume with your first birth, that, and, I mean, a bit with me too, you know, no, I don't need anything, don't need anybody else, that that, often comes out of, you know, the style of attachment, the avo avoidant style of attachment. Of course, it makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. So the, I, I think that what happens now, so the attachment side, so the secure attachment, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a ox, strong oxy, queen oxytocin story. 
in the first instance and continuing. But that's really the thing that those of us who would have the privilege of having a secure attachment style, one of the key factors about it is that we can have our own strengths and capacities to face things in life. But if we're feeling unsafe or need grounding, need to feel that security, with no shame, we can reach out to others and soften into the support that they can give us. And this is what this is the that's how ideal it will be as parents, yeah? That your parents are there for you, not that they're doing everything for you, you're encouraged out into the world. Whereas in the insecure attachment styles, then you know, there's just a very quick overview, but there's the anxious attachment style. And in the anxious attachment style, this really comes out of um, a parenting story where the parent is sometimes on and sometimes off. So sometimes they're going to be totally available to what you need and so on, but sometimes they're not. And from the baby, the child's point of view, you're not in control of that and you don't know. And so you, you're anxiously attached all the time, wondering if you will be safe, if you can be safe, if you can rely on them, will they be present to you, will they so on, so on, so on. And so there's in adult time, we talk about them, you know, that's just like a pre- preoccupied attachment style because you never know when they're going to be on and when they're not going to be when they're going to be off. And so you're paying attention all the time, to trying to get. So that generally means that the child and or the adult in our relationships and so on, or the birthing woman are escalating their attachment cries, whatever that might look like, whether that's language, whether that's crying, whether that's distress, whether that's dramatic ways of being, but we're escalating those in order to try and get that, you know, if I work hard at this, if I, if I really am really distressed and I keep going and keep going and keep going, they will pay attention and they will come and they will be the parent, yeah? So that's the anxious style of attachment. But we also know that with attachment style, you know, it usually is pretty well goes straight to your Romantic attachments, it's one of the most predictable <laughs> so, uh, psychological sort of way foundations that just gets transferred into our romantic engagements. We then we've talked a little bit about the avoidance style, and in the avoidance style, the 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 adult, the caregiver, is just really never really available at this level of of attachment security. And so the child at a young age and then the adult following that through just rely on themselves and get a feeling that they must be true and enough to themselves and that it's shameful to be vulnerable, it's shameful to have needs, it's shameful to feel, to sort of feel like you could reach out or that you somebody might reach towards you. That feels like, well, that's a sign of weakness. So there's a lot of shame in what we call. So I, some of my work has been with Gestalt therapy and they have this beautiful language of ground shame, like the, the, the foundation of the emerging personality and being is grounded in shame. And it's this shame of need, shame of vulnerability, shame of needing that. And if you've got that shame of vulnerability, because this is a lot of this is a lot of the work that I do. I do like a coaching kind of connection with mothers now as part of my role. And those of us, and and this, you know, I've had that. That's the avoidance is, is where I'm at. And I mean, it's how I'm at, how I birth. And you're right, it's how I am as a as a wife. I mean, there's some research that backs this in terms of pain styles, if you like, and attachment. So I reckon the avoidant, so in contemporary birth culture where the fucking epidural is is so dominant that the avoidant, the woman with the avoidant or dismissing in adult terms we often call it as a dismissing, so dismissing any need, yeah, dismissing vulnerability. So the epidural is brilliant. You could play Angry Birds through the whole of the labour. You could watch telly. You could sleep. You could, you know, nobody, you don't need no emotional support or what have you. So epidural, 
perfect companion for there. The anxious attachment women, so these are the women where their their pain threshold is heightened because it's like trying to get that, trying, trying, trying hard to get that emotional support that is needed at that point. So it tends to be that they feel the pain much more acutely. And I don't want to go into all the details about you know pain research now, but we now know that, yes, pain happens in tissues and in our case, in stretch receptors and so on in terms of birth or in damaged tissues, which is not so much the case in birth occasionally, but not so much, much more about stretch receptors in all those brilliant parts of our bodies that open to release our babies. But that pain is felt at source, but also pain is mediated through through brain and brainstem, and then therefore through our psychology and our emotions and feelings. So that that escalation or women who find the pain to be very, very distressing, this can come certainly out of anxious attachment. And so the pain behaviours are very dramatic in order to, to get that attention and to have somebody with you in all of that. Securely attached women, they can be goddesses and strong and powerful and Amazonian women with their birth, or they can be surrendering and feeling those times when they really need some somebody close and to talk them through and eye contact or whatever. They're free to do all of that. Um, but the anxious attachment, I think, generally nowadays ends in an epidural as well because that escalating of the attachment, the, the pain behaviours, which are not really well received in the system and supported and understood i'm wondering they just read let me just say or they just read that yes pain labor is birth is so painful poor things they shouldn't have to suffer it's terrible this pain and the epidural is what they need so the epidural come into both those stories i'm wondering you you know as you're talking about the anxious attachment and, and how they perceive pain and feel pain i'm wondering if that if there's any connection or any research around whether those type of people experience that pathophysiological pain because we know that you know like back pain like back pain is so i mean there's so much around back pain right and how it's this it's emotional well of course let's talk about partners in mm-hmm. in, in terms of attachment so remember what the attachment researchers say that that your, your attachment style is really set in the first three years you know when it can be changed People can do work or life circumstance can change and can change and so on, but generally it's laid down and that it's predictable from one generation to to another. Really it's predictable from your grandmother. So what your Mm -hmm. mother's attachment style with with your grandmother, that's pretty well going to come down unless unless that sort of work or some gift in life comes where what we call earned security comes, generally through psychological work or sometimes in childhood when family dynamics change dramatically and somebody else comes into that picture that can offer that secure attachment to that small child. So, you know, they have a way of not exactly dictating, but we choose partners somewhere around and our attachment dynamics are happening in the couple relationship. So let's talk about now the couple relationship is in the birth space, good, bad, and otherwise of the couple relationship. So in the generations before me, you know, as part of the generation of women, we're starting to bring our partners into the birth space. And I sometimes say in my classes, you know, on the one hand, I've got to beg forgiveness for us doing that. On the other hand, it's one of the most beautiful things that has has happened, that fathers are in that birth space and who are then open to the magic of that bonding with that baby. So in the in this in the way it's unfolded, the expectation is that the partner will be that solid presence which, as you're saying and we know, 
in for generations, generations, generations has actually been a woman, often maybe your mother or your grandmother or a, a, a group of women who would hold that space. But now we're we're that is seen to be the couple, and there are other players are sort of peripheral around the side. But men are coming into this sort of sacred space without really an in-depth. We're not even really one full generation in, and you know it's only in really more westernised countries that fathers still are coming into the birth space. Mm. Many like when I was in the Solomons, they didn't. And, you know, I, I was in that, that's when I started to invite them in if the if the woman wanted it. But it was it, it was met with, yeah, that was, it was big. It was big. <laughs> the, so the expectation at a social level is that he will be, he, she, partner. I mean, if it's, if it's a same-sex and it's another mother as the partner, well, then that that is in line with the long long history of human birth, yeah, where other women have been around. But we're talking here around really fa- the fathers of the babies, males in that birth space, who are then seen to be that key emotional strength and pivot point. The point I want to make is really around the attachment. So in attachment theory and attachment styles, there's first of all that idea of the safe haven. And the safe haven is that knowing when you're in a threat situation – so our attachment style isn't activated all the time. It gets activated in stress situations, in danger situations, whether that's physical, emotional, or however it is. And then we're looking for that that attachment figure who can soothe because we know if we're in a threat situation, we've got the fight, flight, freeze, all the hormones change and so on. We need to have that feeling of safety with the attachment figure that then soothes the hormones. And so that attachment figure in the birth is providing that soothing that that will help the hormones to unfold beautifully but then as well as that there's another aspect about attachment style and that is what we what's called the secure base for exploration right so we want the soothing in a dangerous threat situation but then the attachment style or the way the connection is with the attachment figure is that we because I mean it's very easy to keep somebody feeling safe if you just stop them from having any experience in life just wrap them up in cotton wool or emotions and so Mm. this secure base for exploration is and I mean we see it typically I've got one of my um my fifth grandchild is right at this stage now just that little one and a half to two year old and she's you know they go off and play with the blocks over there or the cars in her situation but when they've been over playing that for a little while they're just looking back to check is this okay Mm. you know they, they want that eye contact they want that so this is the secure base base for exploration this encouragement out into the world and, of course, as they grow, it changes from being the blocks over there to the kindergarten or the school experience or the teenager or what have you, but that's, that being encouraged, but knowing you're, that you're being encouraged into things with parameters of safety around and that if needs be, you can check back in. So this is a secure base for exploration. So in terms of partners in the birth space, they may be the depending on how long they've been together as a couple and what each of their attachment styles, the partner could act as that safe haven. We sometimes see this with couples, very tight and close and, yeah. But can the partner in the birth space act? Because what the woman's got to do for normal physiological childbirth is to get into the work of it, yeah, to be encouraged into the work of it. She needs Which is vulnerability. Yes, and she needs that secure base for the exploration of herself in the context of being a birthing woman and so on and so on. And can partners do this? Because often in the language of attachment, this is um, drawn down to beautiful language of is the sort of support 
is the attachment support encouraging brave or wanting to save? Brave or save? I mean, mm. so can the father of the baby, can the male partner, who's this is a whole new world, no generational pattern of, can they encourage, as well as in the present labor bypass era and the time of the epidural and so on, can the partner in that space encourage the mother? and support her into brave or wanting to save. The whole system wants to save her from the whole work, hard work of it. Does he, she want to save? And if they're going to save, then we ain't going to have a normal physiological childbirth. So in a cultural moment, I hope it's a moment, I hope we can move through it, but in the cultural moments that have been building, it is to save women from the work of it. You know, oh, the poor things, is too pain. really it's about the pain, too painful, too this, too that, the poor things... So we demonise the pain and then we want to save women from it. So the save and brave then is around the thing of being brave to work with and be present in your body and to be supporting of that. And, I mean, in in a you know in those fantastic home births and also in hospitals as well when there's a – because there are many women in – midwives in hospitals who want to be encouraging but brave. But uh, it's not like – Shout out to them if they're listening. Thank you for doing what you do. Yes. We adore you. Keep doing it. Keep staying yeah. in the system. We need you there. We need you there. The these Just to mind this, you know, thread this back to where we started, you know, the, the crisis of confidence that I language and framing that, that that's not the whole of the labour. It's just that they're crucial, crucial points. You know, maybe they they jump, they're always jump up points in terms of the intensity and the brilliance of the labour unfolding. Maybe if they're well supported, maybe they last four or five contractions, something like that. Yeah, one maybe a bit longer, but but they're crucial in terms of will the mother be held and supported in security and you know, often eye contact or some words at that point or maybe a bit of dancing or whatever it is to move through those crises of confidence or is she in that freak out and feeling like, you know, well, now it's too much. So what can happen in terms of the dance between the couple? I mean, for most of the labour, it's not exactly like this all the time, but basically I'm sitting in the corner having a cup of tea. Birth? Physiological birth is boring. It really is. Like there's not actually a lot to it. The woman's doing a thing. And so much of the work is done, the safety work is done beforehand. But yes. then, you know, she comes towards a crisis of confidence or so. And maybe then because um, if the partner can hold that, that can be good. But sometimes the partners can't hold that. That's too freaky for them. And so that's the point when the midwife might step in and do a bit of dancing with the mum or I might do a bit of dancing or we might, and the partner has a bit of a break. And then when it's back on a new groove, you know, we're sitting back and having another cup of tea and the partner and the woman and their partner are doing the dance game. So no, it's I need a to, to explain the dance here. You're not actually physically dancing. For people that don't know this terminology <laughs> as well, it's the emotional dance and that connection with people, you know, and, and trying to get get onto the level and, and help them move through emotionally whatever they're moving through. So whether they think they can't do it or the pain is too big or whatever the words are coming out that are trying to explain what they're feeling is, that's the dance. It's trying to move them through that. Yes, although sometimes it can be. Hippie dancing, of course, of course. Like I mean, you know, the, the moves in labour, nothing compares to them. They're so intuitive. Yes, because sometimes I think that, you know, well, the social sort of story is that it's this beautiful bonding time between couples, you know. And so mm. some women are not making a choice to have a doula because they can feel like, well, that's somehow or other not honouring, you know, the, the beautiful 
you know, if you were going on a fun run or a marathon or what have you, and your partner knows nothing about running or has never worked through a sort of a pain barrier in any way in their physical life, you'd like them there at the start, you know, to encourage you off at the start. You'd love them to be there at the at the finish point to celebrate it with you. But if you're really struggling with it, you know, up the hills or around the bend or what have you, you want somebody who's there, who's done this, who knows what it's like. And so you, the coach or your running buddies or your kayaking buddies or whatever you, who know a thing or two. So in birth, I mean, it is a big change and it's a beautiful change because what we're seeing socially since father's mm. present at birth is that not entirely done yet, but we're seeing many more really deeply connected fathers, the nurturing father, rather mm. than the, the, you know, the father who's outside the sort of nurturing system, but now they're very much in that nurture, nurturing system. So we certainly don't want to go back and not have partners there. Do you want somebody who knows what the fuck they're doing? Mm. If you're on the footy field and you can't, or the basketball court, or I'm talking about the way I talk about this with the... Yeah, you're not going to get the fans to strap the ankle, are you? Yeah. Right? I mean, or, that's... You're, or you're not going to ask partner who doesn't... to where you can't you can't keep a hold of that player that you're supposed to be on and guarding and they keep slipping away and you can't work it out. You're not going to ask your, your partner who knows nothing about techniques. You're going to talk to your other players or your coaches or whatever. But, like, I get, what do you see? You want I always use the analogy of... I always use the analogy of Everest. You know, you want your partner there to walk beside you, but you want a Sherpa to guide you. And I always see that the, the role of the doula is is the Sherpa. And, you know, it kind of brings back to exactly what we've been talking Sometimes about. Sometimes you want somebody to carry your pack for a little while as well. Yeah. And and the, they can do that as well. But I really see, um, you know, it brings it back to that birth is, is a social event that, you know, requires a team. That, and, and everyone's team is going to look different. But if you want that physiological birth, then you need your team to be experts in physiological birth. I, I mean, think I we think need to wrap it up. Yeah, I think we need to wrap it up. I think we need to wrap it up. So, so fantastic to be speaking. We've given lots of snippets of lots of things. So if you want to know more, you need to dive deep into Ria's amazing books uh there i'm going to totally give a plug they're available on my website um and you can buy them through the shop there or you can buy them through ria's site too what else are you doing how else can people connect with you at the moment what work are you doing and right now are you just soaking up your grandbabies and i can't imagine that you're just doing that i mean i was at a conference with you recently and you presented but if people want you how do they find you what are you offering I mean, I do the the doula course every year, so there's that. But um, in if fact, you want to be a doula, you can train with Rhea, and that is face to face in Melbourne. Or are you offering that online? Face to face. You can't do doula work online. Yes. It's about being with the. I am this year. The none of the dates and things are sorted, but you know we've got to factor in COVID. So that that second book of mine came out in 2020. With the first book when it came out, I travelled around Australia and did book launches and, and workshops around the content of the book. Planning that when the second book came out, but of course the world had different plans. So I'm planning this year to be doing some of that. So oh, awesome. space for for people who might want to be caught up in that. I do And that'll do, be workshops for more more so midwives and birth workers. Midwives or doctors and open to yep. who whoever hears the word and feels to come along. But I am also with my my doula course, which, of course, is a nine-month course here in Melbourne. And, again, I've been planning to do this for a while but haven't been able because of doula, because of not doula, because of I'm getting tired. What is it, COVID? Who could forget? 
um, <laughs> we'd like to forget. Okay. Is to condense mm-hmm. that nine-month course down to the key things that are specifically specific. my knowledge base as opposed to, you know, there's lots of general things that any other doula course would be offering and to condense that down into maybe a five-day intensive, something like that, and travel that. So I'm going to be on the road a bit and doing some so people can can watch. I'm not great on my social media, but I'm, I promise I'm going to try and be better this year. But there will be information about this stuff up, and then I do do birth debriefings. I mean, it's important work to do. You know this is so important, mm-hmm. such important work to do. Yeah. But. And then a third book and a PhD, is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> um, my daughter, who I've said is my, you know, my editor and whatever, and we've had that conversation, I said to her, the second book was quite very difficult to do. And I rang her up one day and I said, look, if I ever come to you talking about I want to do a third book, just tell me no. And my daughter said to me on the end of the phone, she said, Mum, if you ever come to me talking about a third book, just no. So we're not ready. So you need a new publisher. That's what I'm hearing. (laughs) But I haven't got this book out into the world yet. I haven't been able to get out and talk about it so much. So we'll worry about that later on. Epic. Well, I think we have another few episodes to cover, it feels like. But as I said, it's in your book. It's They're in your book. If people want to know more, they can dive into it. Um, but thank you so much for your time today. And I just want to say as one woman to another, but also as a birth worker to another birth worker, thank you for what you've done in this space. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have to thank all of those hundreds and hundreds of babies who just a thing or two. Big mm, love. Thank you. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. You can find out more about Mel at melaniethemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs>